So let's get started for tonight. Um, we're in our Matthew study. We're studying the, dis- the five discourses of Matthew, um, these five kind of lengthy sermons that Jesus teaches in this book. He says a lot of other things, has conversations, does a lot of miracles, but there's five times where he kind of settles in and teaches kind of a sermon. And, and theologians kind of break them out because at the end of each one it says, and when he had come to an end of all these teachings. And so we... Um, so something about, I'm sure Jesus taught more sermons than this, but something about these five really grabbed Matthew's attention. So um, we know that, you know, uh, the people lived through this, and then they went and spread the gospel, and then as they kind of drew to the end of their lives, they looked back and realized it didn't look like Jesus would have come back before they died, and so they better put some of this in writing. And so this is, it, when we read the gospels, it's kind of interesting because, we read them in real time like they happen, but we also have to remember that this they were written, um, most of them, 30 to 40 years after Jesus left. And so these are people going back and kind of capturing what they thought was the most important thing about Jesus that they didn't want to lose, and they wrote these down for us. And so Matthew kind of capitalizes on these five sermons throughout his book. And we're in the first one, which is the Sermon on the Mount. We started that, and, and we talked about how the big thing is we study these teachings is one of the things that makes Jesus unique is he's not a, he's not a prophet bringing a teaching. Like um, whether it's Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, like they are uh, a messenger bringing a message, bringing a teaching. With Jesus, it's actually backwards. We read the message to bring us to the messenger. So we, it, it's the teaching that brings us to Jesus, not Jesus that's bringing us a teaching. So the purpose we're studying these isn't because we want to see Jesus give us like a new way to live. And that's part of it, and there's some good stuff like that in there. But this is stuff that introduces us to Jesus the person and hopefully makes us fall in love with him. Because we talked about how Peter um, has this big moment. I think it's supposed to be kind of the quintessential climax of the book where Matthew captures this conversation where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well, they said, well some say one of the prophets, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and John the Baptist come back and things like that. And Jesus says, yeah, but what do you say? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So something, and this is pre-resurrection. This is before Jesus, uh, Peter had the benefit of seeing the risen Christ. So something in his teaching, something in his lifestyle, something in the things he said and what he did, convinced Peter that this is the very Christ. And we know that Peter had a little mixed up understanding what that meant. And so when it didn't go the way he thought it was going to go, he wavered. But he was he he did capture the essence of Jesus' teaching that this is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And so our hopes as we study Jesus' teaching here for the next however twenty some odd weeks is that we would come to the same conclusion, that at the end of this teaching we would be utterly convinced that this is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. So that's why we're doing it. We're doing this to bring us to Jesus, not so that Jesus can bring us um, some new way or new path. So we don't know what the Beatitudes. And we started with this, uh, this kind of study of a reality that's not reality. This, these teachings that we know don't work. We know that the meek don't inherit much. We know that those who hunger and thirst for justice don't usually see it. We know that the peacemakers usually get trampled. And so we read this reality Jesus is laying out, and I feel like we were supposed to read this and go, clearly you're talking about another kingdom because none of that would work here. None of that works in my life. I've seen it. None of that is the way it really plays out. And, and so we recognize that Jesus was actually introducing a new kingdom. He was showing a different kingdom than the one we already know. Because we all know when we read the Beatitudes that those are not part of the kingdoms of this world. That's not how it works. Usually it's the powerful and the 
blunt and the, the brazen that inherit things. And usually it's the, the people who don't care about peace who wind up ruling and on top. And, and so Jesus is outlining a flipped kingdom, a different kind of kingdom. I think we were supposed to spot that, that something's new coming, is coming. But he also then follows up with, Speaking to Jews, he says, you are the salt, you are the light. Like, you were supposed to see this. This is Torah. This is what Torah was supposed to create on the world. This is what you were supposed to be. And it seems like you've lost your saltiness. It seems like you're not being the light. You've, you've covered it in a basket. You're not putting it on a hill. Because um, then he follows right up with, you know, this, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to change anything. I've come to show Torah the way it was supposed to be. I've come to show this the way it was supposed to shine in the world. Every jot and tittle is going to be fulfilled. And then after that, Bill brought us, um, when that, Jesus starts to put, kind of put feet on that, show us what that might look like, what it might look like to live out the Beatitudes. You've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. I say don't even lust. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say don't even be angry for, without reason. You know, you've heard it said, you know, all these things. And, and we start to see that, um, and Bill, I think, captured it perfectly. Simple but not easy. You know, that Jesus lays out these pretty simple truths, this pretty simple way of life. It doesn't take a theologian to get it, but it's not easy. There's nothing easy in it. And he starts to kind of break down that the gospel is underneath a command. It hits on things you can't make a command for. How do you make a law, an enforceable law, not to lust? Like, how do you... How do you how do you punish that? Like, how do you how do you even know it's happening? And so the, we find out that the gospel actually goes below the commandment, goes below the law um, at a deeper level. And then we last time we talked about um, as we get into so Bill talked about how the gospel affects the things we're told not to do, um, like kill, murder. I mean, <laughs> kill and murder, like murder, adultery. You know these things. Um, and then we talked last week about how it also affects the good that we do. When you pray, when you fast, when you give, you know, how do you do it? And he, and he starts to break down. Um, last week we talked about how um, that there's something in doing it in secret, like he, he tells us, that um, it almost checks your motives. Like it, it makes you look at why you're like, who in the world... Um, gives completely secret so that not even his left hand knows what his right hand is doing it, for a bad motive. Like, what, what could possibly be the evil motive there? And so he, he kind of lays out this kind of underneath thing. And then, um, at the end of that passage, we did kind of a survey study of chapter 6. We're going to dig into it a little bit more tonight. But at the end of that passage, he kind of gives us this litmus test where he says, therefore, don't be anxious about anything. And this, I think, is like one of the most perfect um, looks at the depth that the gospel works because what command could touch anxiety? Like we all know anybody who's ever struggled with anxiety knows the absolute worst thing someone can tell you to do is not be anxious. Like to command you to stop being anxious feeds the problem. Like and so there is no command that can touch anxiety. Only the gospel can do that. The gospel is underneath the command. The gospel is like this power underneath that when it starts to to change us and when it starts to affect our heart, we see anxiety just just loosening its grip on us. But you can't command that away. There is no law you could write that would affect anxiety. And so Jesus kind of gives us after telling us all these these ways that the gospel like subverts 
a commandment and goes even deeper than the command ever could, then he gives us this test. Like, what are you anxious about? What are you worried about? Um, where are your eyes? We finished last week with this, this kind of understanding of the kingdom of God and when your focus is on the kingdom of God. And, and we ended talking about um, praying in the kingdom of God a little bit. We talked about this at the end last week that um, whatever your thing is, and this is what I think is so beautiful about this prayer that Jesus laid out for us here, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And whatever your, whatever your thing is, maybe it's social justice, you look forward to a world where there's no bigotry and no um, misogyny and there's equality for people, then your prayer is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In the kingdom of God, there is none of that. And then maybe your thing is holiness and sin just drives you crazy. You hate seeing people... Um, buried in sin, then your prayer is, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, because in His kingdom there will be no sin. You know, maybe it's, you know, power and you just want to see people healed and you want to see, you know, then your prayer is, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. So, you know, whatever is going on, maybe it's truth, maybe confusion and misinformation, all the fake news that's bouncing around drives you crazy. Maybe that's just, then your prayer is, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. The word truth is a person and there is no misinformation. So, we can all pray together. No matter what our thing is, we can all pray the same prayer together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. And we all get our prayer answered in that. When God's kingdom crashes into our kingdom, we find ourselves seeing our prayers answered. So um, so that brings us to, the, to this week. And tonight we're going to... Uh, we've been talking about how the gospel gets into the heart, gets underneath the commandment, and gets in where it changes us from the inside. We're going to talk tonight about some of the tension that that creates. Did it work? No, it did not work. There we go. Okay. Because Jesus has made it clear that the gospel is more concerned with our heart, our motives, like our deep inner intentions than it is with just our behavior. The problem is, if we're honest, um, we can't even really get to our own motives, usually. Like, most of us have no idea um, why we're doing a lot of what we're doing. Like, you know, very few of us um, are really aware of our deep inner motives. And part of the problem is with our heart. And I think the reformers caught on to this. This is the thing that the reformers did a pretty good job of pulling out some of the things they really dug into. Um, they pulled out uh, some really good answers for the questions they were asking at the time. And, and one of those was the nature of sin and its effect on us. And they, they dwelt on this concept... Um, called total depravity, which was that every part of us has been affected by sin. Um, and one of, the, one of the things they noticed was that even when we do good, we're usually doing it because it makes us feel good to do it. That even in the, even in the good we do, there's this little bit of a, a selfish side of it. And, uh, and I think, you know, we struggle with this all the time. I think, um, you know, one of my favorite things, modern, our modern idea of love, like love is a big one. You know, it's, it's the uh, movies are filled with it, sitcoms, like it's the center of, of our culture just to fall in love. You know, we all have this love concept. But usually, love is less about um, the way you feel about a person, and it's more about the way that person makes you feel. Like even in our love, there's this, when we say, man, I love you, what we're really saying is, man, I feel really good when I'm with you. That, it makes me feel so good. Like we, we kind of make fun about, of the word, like that we can say, I love you to, to, our, to our 
person that we're in love with, and we can also say, I love a, a cheeseburger. You know, and, we, and, and the word seems to always say, it's like, man, I love this cheeseburger. But the reality is, we're probably saying the same thing. We're probably saying, this cheeseburger makes me feel so good. And then we're driving our car, we look at our spouse, we look over, we're like, man, you make me feel good. Like, really, it's probably the exact same word. Very rarely is it, I want to lay down my life for you. Usually it's, man, this makes me feel good. There's a funny, like, almost selfishness built into even our love, that really what we're saying is, is I like me when I'm with you. Like, I like, you know, this this feeling I have. And... And really a lot of our evangelism is wrapped up in this. We've talked about this in here a lot. You know, kind of our, our standard, you know, believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell, you know, sales pitch is really about self-preservation. Like it's about, you know, I don't want, it's, it's not about look at this awesome Jesus and fall in love with that. It's more about I don't want to burn so I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I don't want to go to hell that would be bad for me, so I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Like we sell this, our evangelism is this get-out-of-jail-free card rather than selling Jesus, than actually pushing a Savior who is beautiful and awesome and amazing and wants to make the world better and fully and utterly captivating. Like we rarely sell that Jesus. What we sell is a, 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 this almost selfish self-preservation. Like if you want to go to heaven, if you want the good things, if you want to escape hell... Here's the way to do it. And really, there's even a, like a selfishness built into that. Our motive in that is, can be suspect. So the, it, our motives are hard to access. And I think Jeremiah nails it here. Where he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That we have trouble even getting to our own heart. I think David said it well. Um, or I think that's what motivated... Come on. There we go. What motivated David... To say this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I think self-examination, I think the problem with our heart is that self-examination, like really digging in and finding out where we're falling short, um, can sometimes be the ultimate form of narcissism. Like, that we're, that our whole vision goes inward, like, where am I off? And even though we're... Um, even though we're trying to find our own faults, it's still inwardly focused. It's still purely self-focused, which is why I think David, um, I love the way he says this here, is you search me, God. Like I, like I can't even look in and really understand what's going on in there. I don't even truly get my own motives. I don't even, like the, the I can totally see some selfishness in the good I do. I can totally see some, some good in some of the bad I do. And so... I get confused when I look in. I get confused when I spend too much time looking in my own heart. So God, you search me. You shine the flashlight. I'll trust you to tell me if there's something going on. When you convict me of something, and this is when I've done this, it's weird because I'm I'm looking for like my list. Like, am I doing good here? Am I doing good here? Am I doing good here? I'm doing good here. And then all of a sudden, like the Holy Spirit's like, dude, you need a haircut. I'm like, what? That's not even on the list. Who cares if I get a haircut? Like, you know, but like for some reason the Holy Spirit or whatever it is that the Holy Spirit, you know, convicts me of, it never seems to be the things that I thought that I was looking for when I was doing my inward search because I'm usually like, yeah, I'm good here. I'm good here. I'm doing good here. I'm, I'm all good. You know, and then when I ask God to search my heart, he brings up stuff that I would have never dreamed of. So I think David's onto something here when he recognizes that he can't even necessarily see into his own heart. And so he asked God to do it. And I think that's probably a better way. 
Um, so this lack of clarity does create a problem. Jesus keeps pointing out um, that it's about our heart. That it's about our heart. But we're notoriously bad at looking at our own hearts. Um, so how do we function in this kingdom? And this is where I want to uncover probably one of the fundamental tensions of the Christian faith. And that's this. It's not about what you do. It's about what's in your heart, which is revealed by what you do. <laughs> so we get stuck in this loop that it's not about your behavior. It's about your heart. How do you know what's in your heart? You look at your behavior. <laughs> so we get this fundamental tension that we're going to dig into a little bit. This is probably where Christianity gets hung up the most. This is kind of a classic chicken or egg argument, you know, what, what comes first. And Jesus does address this in Matthew 15. He says that those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. So you can see how clear this is. It's not, you know, the outward things that defile us. It's, it comes from our heart. It's these things that come out of our heart that defile us. But if you look at this, it's still a list of things that defile us. So, so we have this, this tension of, of it's what proceeds out of your heart. It's the condition of your heart that is bad and out of that heart comes this list of things these are the things that defile a man so when we see this list and we see somebody doing these things what do we do? we see somebody stealing you know do we I mean this is this is where it gets tough do we say hey stop stealing that's not the godly thing to do that's not God or do we say ah I see your heart is has theft in it I see your heart has this brokenness in it so you need the gospel to get into the heart to change you. Like it, and and it's, it's hard because none of us do that. None of us are going to go to court and go, well, he's just got a bad heart. What are you going to do? You know, it's nothing we can do. You can't punish him for having a bad heart. You know, I mean, so, but, we, but that's pretty much what Jesus is saying here. So it's kind of a roots or fruits thing. Like we, we have a tendency when we look at the fruits of the Spirit, like he's the fruits of the Spirit, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, you know, love, joy, peace, whatever, um, they all are. And so we have a tendency to pursue those things. We have a tendency to go, so that means I need to be more long-suffering, I need to be more gentle, I need to have more joy. But that's not what it says. It says these are the fruits of the root, which is the Spirit. And so the, what we do is we chase after the Spirit, we seek the Spirit, and this will be the fruit of achieving that. Yet our tendency is to try and focus on being more. We try to get the fruit with no root. You know what I mean? And so it's almost the same way here. Like we have the, the fruits of having this stuff in our heart is that, is that we see this list of things. Jesus says fornications, adulteries, murders, evil thoughts, false witness, blasphemies. The root is our heart. And so um, we have a tendency to focus on the behavior. The gospel goes the other way. Um, so let's, look at this, let's bring this tension so we all feel this tension right we all feel this is it do we focus on the behavior do we focus on the heart That's, we're going to bring that tension now back to Matthew 6 a little bit because that's what he kind of dives into here um, when he's talking about the good deeds we do praying 
um, even our fasting. He, he kind of gets into this, when you do this, you do it in a certain way. And I think this is where Jesus kind of starts to uncover a particular truth, that the way we do things can help us to create a space by which our heart can be changed. And so this is where the behavioral side of the gospel comes into play. Okay, and we're going to look at this. When I look at these things Jesus said about doing things in secret, um, I believe this serves several purposes. One, um, it keeps us from, uh, I guess, feeling pious and and self-righteous when we do something. Um, It keeps us from having that, you know... uh, I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to ask an honest question, and I swear if I'm the only one that raises my hand, I'm going to leave right now and go home. Has anybody ever done something in secret, and the pressure to tell somebody is, like, almost unbearable? Honest show of hands. <laughs> I don't know, would that be wrong? Am I, yeah. Yeah, right? Like, and, you're, and you feel great when you do it, because you're like, nobody knows. I totally did something anonymous. That was so awesome. And then the next day, you're like, yeah, I don't know, yesterday I kind of did a cool thing. Ask me about it. Come on, ask me about it. Like, it was like the pressure to talk about it is so strong. You know, and, and so I think something about that, that secret, something about doing it in secret, reveals that. Like, we wouldn't even know how bad, like none of us, because you know, the way he presents it, like don't blow a trumpet and, you know, like none of us are going to, hey, everybody, I'm giving. Watch, this is awesome. That's me. I just, like, none of us are going to do that, right? And so we might have this tendency to think, I don't blow a trumpet, I don't make a big deal. So, you know, clearly I don't struggle with that verse until you do something in secret. And man, the pressure to let somebody know about that. Then you only ask me one person, like just somebody, just to, just to vent the pressure a little bit, like to let somebody know that you're cool. Like that's, that's all we really want to do. Let somebody know that I'm awesome. Um, so it almost works like an MRI or a CAT scan, I don't know which test does looks at you from the inside, but one of them, that we can look at ourselves. Like we have a tendency to always see the outside. And, and only when we do these things in secret do we notice that, um, that we have these pressures in us that we may not have otherwise known was there. Um, and the big one is that if we do these things right, it can actually begin to change our heart. And this brings us back to that tension. Um, by practicing virtues and doing them rightly, we actually create a space where the gospel can change our hearts from the inside until it's no longer practicing a virtue. It's no longer doing a good thing. It becomes part of who we are. And we've all experienced this. Like usually, you know, giving's a big one. When you first start to give, and you're like, man, I'm, you know, 10%, not a penny more, you know, and we get it and it's hard and, you know, and it's just a really tough thing to do. And then there comes a point where it's like you wouldn't even think, you wouldn't even dream of, of, of not, you know, just because it's, it's become, like by doing it, you create this space by which it becomes part of who you are and a virtue. Um, I think fasting is, is another one. Like I, um, you know, most of us, when we first kind of start the discipline of fasting at Lent, you know, um, we're... You know, it's a, it's a struggle and it's this hard thing we, we fight with. And then there comes a point where, um, where it's like a joy. Like this, this year, and my wife completely subverted it. She completely ruined my fast. So I'm going to talk trash on my wife for a second. 
Because I did this fast that it, it was going to bring, like, my, it was something that I felt God was laying on my heart to kind of put me in a place where I could understand people who were less fortunate than me and what it must be like for them. Um, I fasted meat is what I did. So I, now I just ruined everything because I broke this verse, but that's okay. So I fasted meat, which I've never done before. And I, was, and I did it because I, there's a lot of cultures who don't have access to easy protein. And I wanted to see what it was like to experience. And it was actually a joy to do it. Like, and I, and it, it opened my prayer life for people who were less fortunate than me. And I was really excited about doing it. it, was, and, it was, and it came out of a place... And my wife, being such an excellent cook, was like, oh, this is exciting. I've had so many awesome, you know, vegetarian recipes I've been wanting to try and blah, blah, blah. And so I ate really well for 46 days. Like, and at the end of the thing, all I could come up with was, yeah, I don't understand why those poor people don't just get a chef, man. They can really make some great food out of what they have. Yeah, ruin my fast completely. It wasn't what I meant to come up with. No, I gave her trouble the whole time. She would put this screen in front of me, and I was like, it's like you don't even understand what I'm doing. This looks fantastic. Like this, I'm trying to suffer here, and you're not letting me suffer. But, um, yeah, so, but my point to that whole thing, that wasn't actually supposed to be in there. My point to that whole thing was that um, fasting, which I used to do, is this really strict discipline. You know, when I first got in, people were like, this one comes out by prayer and fasting. And so I would like, oh, I would I'd, like buckle down, and this is like something you have to do, and I would... And what was funny was usually, even though they told me I wasn't supposed to, I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm fasting, so I'm just weak and, you know, make sure everybody knows what I'm doing. You know, and then there comes a part where it becomes part of your spiritual life and you're excited for each new fast because it gives you a chance to tap into something you wouldn't normally get to tap into and to understand other people and to, um, and to, you know, examine your own heart and, you know, I mean, there's, I remember the first year I fast social media, like after it had gotten its full deep claws in me. You know, and, and uh, the number of times I got my phone out and went, what am I doing? There's nothing to do. I have nothing to do. Like, uh, and then five minutes later, I get my phone out. like, nope, I can't, there's nothing to do. Like, I didn't even realize how much of a habit that had become to pull out my phone until I tried to fast it. And it like, it revealed something to me I'd never known. And that was a joy to learn. Honestly, it wasn't even like a, a strict thing. It was just, it was fun. And that's how these virtues work. We, we, we do them. Out of, to create a space by which the gospel can then get in and start to do work on us and start to change us. So, um, though it's not about what we do, what we do does matter. And so we're going to look at... Did I skip one? Yeah, okay. Yep. So we're going to take this, we're going to take that idea... Back to our passage. Last week we talked a little bit about this prayer, Thy kingdom come. We dug, it, dug into that a bit, what that looks like to pray that His kingdom would come and His will be done. This week we're going to talk about the bookends of this message, kind of the front and the back of this prayer that Jesus gives us. Um, because He asks us here ultimately to worship. And, and, and it's almost like He's saying, if we put this in our parlance, like when you go to God, to ask for things. Here's how you do it. You start by saying who God is. Like you start by focusing on God and not you. So when you go to God to focus on you, and I want you to do that, I want you to come to me for your needs. I want you to recognize I'm the source. I'm where things come from. So yes, come to me with your needs. But when you come to, for yourself, first come for me. And this is a, a really, really powerful the thing I want to talk about here, I, I once heard a preacher say, if you only have ten minutes to pray, 
Spend eight of them in worship because you'll be amazed at how much you can do with the last two minutes. Like, if you'll spend eight of your ten minutes worshiping, you'll kick some serious butt with the last two minutes. Like, and, but if you try to spend the entire ten talking about yourself, you're not going to get far. So, that's, I don't know why that's stuck with me forever, but, um, I've read it. So the, the key, and I think the key here is that worship, um, is outwardly focused. It, it creates a space by which our hearts can, um, can be right. It's, so when we focus on telling God who He is, about reveling in His goodness, what He has done, His works, His character, His creativity, His power, <laughs> it takes our minds off of ourselves for a minute. It pushes our focus outward. And some people get hung up on this. Some people are like, a, a lot of, I've heard a lot of atheists say this, like, why would I worship a God that creates something just to sit and worship Him? Like, God's the ultimate narcissist. Like, He made us just so we could sit there and focus on Him. A lot of people struggle with this. Why would God command worship? That feels so... And I don't think that's it. I don't think God needs our worship at all. I think God knows we need to not look at ourselves for a minute. I think that's why He says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's one equal to this, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, in, in, like, in both of those, what you need is to get your eyes off of you for a second and put them somewhere else. Whether it's God, whether it's neighbor, either way... Your eyes have to get off yourself for a minute. So I don't think he's sitting there like, you know, just almost like gobbling up this worship that comes his way like it's, you know, something he commands and he, I created you just so you could tell me how awesome I am. That's not it. God's fully confident and okay if we don't worship him. He just knows we need that. He knows we need to take our eyes off of ourselves for a second. And when we do that, when we create that space... When we worship, then it puts our hearts in a place where the gospel can get in there and start rooting. That discipline creates space for the gospel to do it, its thing. So how do we respond to this? <laughs> this is pretty simple. We worship. And this is nothing stylistic. I'm not saying this has anything to do with singing particular kinds of music or in a particular way. Maybe music's not even your thing and that's fine. Like, there's absolutely no problem with standing in the midst of a worship service and just standing there going, God, you're awesome. You're just awesome. Like, you don't have to sing. You can just say it. You can just focus on God for a minute and tell Him who He is and focus on Him for a minute. And, um, and, and our worship, our modern worship isn't free of temptations. We kind of have a superstar worship thing going on right now. It's kind of a one of the motifs in the church, you know, where you know some of the biggest rock stars in the Christian world right now are worship leaders, you know, and when you see them on stage, they don't look any different than you know than any other rock star. But so there are some temptations in our worship to 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 make it about us, and we do have a tendency um, to worship in a way and with music that does make us feel good. So it is. I'm not saying that just by singing songs we're automatically in a place of worship. I mean, I love and I know it's a struggle um, when you've got little ones, but to me there's no more pure act of worship, you know, because there's something that always gets me when, when someone is like, uh, I don't know, I just worship so much better when there's not kids around. I'm like, is that worship though? If it's like, it just makes me feel so much better, I can get into it so much more, it's so much easier on me if I don't have to wrestle with a kid, and I'm like, is this supposed to be about you? <laughs> like, I mean, when you're sitting there and you're 
holding one kid and you have to step on the other one to keep it from running away. And, and you're still willing to go, you know, your love is amazing, oh God. Like, to me, that is when you're like, trust me, this is not about me right now. Like, I am not why I'm doing this. This is because I think this time that I've set aside to put my focus on God, and even though I have to do it while lassoing children, you know, this is important to me. It means something to me to stand and worship God and not be in an environment that just feeds me. And I do think that is important. I do think it's a very, very pure worship when, we, when we're doing it at a time when, when obviously there's a million other ways I would rather do this. I, you know, and I'm one of those people. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a jump up and down rowdy worshiper. If I had my druthers, I'm in one of those you know, crazy places where everybody's jumping up and down. I'm right in the middle of them looking like an idiot. Like that's, my, that's my space. That's what I absolutely love. But I also know if I came in here and stood on the front row and jumped up and down and acted crazy, everybody in the room would look at me like, what is Chris doing? And that's not what I want. Like, I want everybody's eyes on God, not me. And so we, you know, so part of it is, is you know, this is God's time, not just my time. This isn't just me getting what I need. This is God being the center of our focus. So, um, whatever you're bent, whatever you're into, whether it's, Music or not music, whether it's um, you know lifting up your hands and jumping up and down or singing hymns, you know, together with a congregation and feeling the beauty of the old words flow over you, um, which I just absolutely love. Isn't it amazing whenever you break into Amazing Grace? Like I don't care what the environment and like something happened. Newton nailed it because something happens. You know, when we've all been singing these amazing contemporary songs that have this amazing, you know, melody line that are super easy to just belt out. And then we all go to Amazing Grace and like the whole room changes. Like it's just like, like we're all in it. Like, and it's, it's amazing. You can't top that. Um, but whatever you're into, whatever your, your type of worship, it's supposed to be about Him. It's our chance to focus on Him. And when we focus on Him, take our eyes off ourselves for a minute, we find ourselves able to let the gospel in and let the gospel work on us from the inside. We're creating a space whereby some of this heart stuff that we've been talking about can happen. I think worship is one of the, whatever it is, and there's different, I know some people love to go outside and worship, they love to be in nature and just like they stand there in the awe of God's creation and that's, awesome too. Some people are relational and something about seeing people come together. That's what gets them. Some people are musical. Whatever it is, whatever draws your eyes off of you for a minute and puts them on Him, that's where we need to be. We need to be a worshiping people. I think of above all else. I mean, I guess is our, our response today um, as we look at this heart level gospel thing would be that we would become a worshiping people, a people that focus on Him and not on ourselves. I think the words of the old hymn, uh, this just rolled through my head the whole time I was writing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full. In His wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's all we want. That's all we want. Is that we might look at Him in a way 
that this gets thinner and that becomes more real. We've been talking about praying that kingdom would crash into this kingdom, that that kingdom would overthrow. We know that's the end story. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. We know that's where we're heading, that that's going to be the end game. And worship is one of the ways we see more of that kingdom and less of this one. So we go to the table tonight. I pray that um, our eyes would just be on Him and not on us.